You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm joined today with my co-host and colleague, Andrew Schwartz, and we are delighted to be able to speak today with Congresswoman Susan Brooks, Republican member of Congress from the 5th District in Indiana. Susan, welcome and thank you so much for giving us some time today. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you, Andrew. Happy to be a part of this. Before we get the conversation going, I just want to say a couple of quick things about you. Um, You've been in Congress since 2013, um, and in that period, You've really distinguished yourself with your leadership on health security, pandemic preparedness issues, among other issues. You've really been a champion of bipartisan pragmatism and cooperation, and you joined our Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, the CSIS Commission, two years ago and have been such an active and energetic contributor. And we're just terribly grateful to you and to your staff for all the contributions that you've made. Well, thank you very, very much. I've been very proud to be a part of the commission, and I just never would have guessed that before I leave Congress, which I'll be leaving Congress at the end of this year, that we would be taking so much of what I've learned from the experts that you've gathered, as well as my colleagues like Anna Eshoo and Tom Cole, who have been engaged in this important work far longer than I have been. But, you know, we are now taking the many lessons we've learned, the things that we've exercised and talked about and are putting, you know, much of it into practice and just really didn't think that exercises that you've asked me to be a part of would ever be something I would actually be, you know, leaning on that expertise and background. Great. Thank you. So we're going to talk about a couple of different topics. One that I wanted to start with is this week we released a letter by you and by Congressman Ami Barra, Democrat from California, Sacramento area. And in that letter, you lay out an argument for a crisis response corps for fulfilling many of the urgent needs here in the United States as we face the consequences of the pandemic. And the crisis corps concept was one that we developed quite carefully in the CSIS Commission report that we put out in November. But in that case, we were looking at how you could organize such a corps to operate outside our borders in very unstable and disordered settings, which is still very much an urgent need. But we weren't thinking about how that concept might be applied in the United States because we weren't anticipating a pandemic. I think this is a very, very promising idea, and I'm delighted that you, Congressman Barra, have stood behind it. Many others are standing behind this concept, too. If you could just tell us a little bit about the concept and why you feel it's so important and what it might achieve. We are certainly seeing in communities all across the country our first responders who are always on the front lines, whether it's police, fire, EMS are being called to duty, but now our healthcare system and the healthcare workers are truly on the front line as well. But yet there are so many other critically important, as we're learning, you know, essential duties that still need to happen. 
really what would be best for the country is if we had a very trained and ready to spring into action type of crisis response corps. And in this case, for COVID-19, people who would be placed throughout the communities and particularly in the hot spots, I think, and I think we'll see those hot spots moving around the country to really work hand in hand with the first responders, with those who are uh, overseeing the logistics, those who are taking in the calls, and those who can just really help the community in whatever the community needs most. So, for instance, in my community, we have a 211 call-in system for people to call in and ask for help. That call-in system used to get maybe 2,000 calls a day at most. It is now seeing 25,000 to 35,000 calls a day. So we need people to help answer calls and help direct citizens. We know that testing has ramped up significantly, and so maybe uh, these folks in the COVID Disaster Corps could maybe help with whatever needs to be done to ramp up testing of citizens. There are just so many different responsibilities that often we don't think about in the whole chain of events that this group of citizens would just really be ready to go as a disaster response corps. Right now, uh, FEMA has such an entity, and we have funded it at a higher level. We often think of the Red Cross. Those types of organizations have incredible volunteers who spring into action. But the group that we thought would be most relevant right now are the Peace Corps volunteers who have all been called back from different countries. All 7,000. Yes, they've all come back from different countries. These are incredibly trained individuals. They've already been vetted and they've come back home and let's mobilize them first and foremost and then build out the core based really on their expertise and let them lead this effort. I think it's a tremendous concept. I want to thank you and uh, others at CSIS for bringing it to Dr. Barra and I. And, you know, we'd love to get more traction and support around the concept, but we need to do it quickly. I agree. I agree. I want to add just a little bit more detail to this. Peter Kilmarks at um, NIH in his own private capacity is a prominent public health expert and a very active former Peace Corps volunteer pushed all of us to start thinking in these terms. And we also, in putting this together, reached out to medical officers, state of Illinois, a state of Utah, state of Washington. We also consulted with folks at FEMA, at CDC, and many other places. So I think we ground truthed this pretty well and confirmed that at the state and municipal and county level, uh, there's an appetite. There is a real need for additional talent to come in they're going to have to be protected, obviously. I think that's going to be a big issue in making sure that they are adequately protected against the virus so that we don't have a lot of these core members infected. And I think speed is really important. We're talking about FEMA playing a major role at a federal level as a sort of umbrella institution. But you've said that you also feel like there needs to be a medical and public health partner in the mix. If you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes. And particularly with this core responding to COVID, we know that at the local and state level, it is our state health commissioners and our local public health officials 
that are really making so many of the very important decisions, important decisions about whether it is allocation of the personal protective gear, whether it is understanding what the community needs. I mean, one of the, you know, really incredibly sad thing that we are learning is that, for instance, you know, funeral homes are being overwhelmed. And, and that's the, you know, stark truth around this horrible disease is that there are just so many different parts of the healthcare system that we, we need to make sure health professionals, in addition to FEMA, who do an amazing job in disasters and with logistics and getting supplies where they need to be, but it's the medical professionals, whether it's the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, the ASPR, whether it's CDC, they are the ones that typically have the most direct connections with the local and state health departments. And that's why I feel strongly that it needs to be a strong partnership between ASPR, CDC, and FEMA. Thank you. Let's shift a little bit to your district. You've been back in your district now. How is the pandemic being experienced in and around where you are these days? If you could just describe what, how things feel and what are, how are people looking at the situation? Well, it is being taken extraordinarily seriously. Governor Holcomb put in a stay-at-home order some time ago. I believe we were the 11th state to do a stay-at-home order. It's been extended until the end of April. So only, you know, those very essential businesses are allowed to operate. People, for the most part, are, he um, has used the phrase, hunker down Hoosiers. He wants us to truly stay at home. Um, and people are doing that. I have been in close contact with, I'm trying to be mindful because they're so busy, but our hospitals, the Indiana delegation is on a fairly regular call with the Indiana Hospital Association, and they are bringing in hospital leaders from across the state to share with all of us what is happening on the ground in these hospitals. And so we're hearing from our largest systems like IU Health and Community Health uh, networks to the small rural hospitals. And that's very helpful in a district like mine that is urban, suburban, and rural. I need to hear from all of them. I spoke to two of my hospitals yesterday in a community north of Indianapolis called Anderson and Elwood, and they are part of these larger networks. And so they feel like they are being supported. They have the PPE they need. But these are the types of hospitals that might only have four or five ICU beds. And so they are concerned. They've, they've made arrangements to create other ICU spaces within their hospitals, but they also feel better because they're part of this network that the leaders of the network are ensuring that patients can be moved quickly if they needed to be. So that was reassuring to me to talk to both of those hospitals, one very small hospital and one larger hospital. There's always a concern about not enough tests. I think at the end of the day, that's been our biggest vulnerability. They would like to be testing more, and the guidelines and the availability of the tests, I think, have probably been the biggest problem. They said the community, with respect to masks, I think more than anything else right now, when they thought there was a shortage, the community stepped up. And this is something that I think, you know, we hear about, but it really is happening all across the country. People are making masks and they are, you know, sewing them, stitching them or using their, you know, making masks. Then those masks are donated. They're sanitized and redistributed 
it's just because this virus is so contagious, the number of masks that are needed is just unprecedented. I also saw, even in this morning's paper, that Indiana University are making some of these PPE with 3D computing. And so the innovation that's happening, um, and in some ways, going back to, you know, sewing again, is, I think, really a great way for the community to be involved. My wife pulled out her uh, sewing machine and has been making masks from fabric that I brought back from the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone five years ago. Outstanding. So I'm very familiar with the the small factories that are being created in our homes. I want to turn to um, my partner in this and co-host Andrew Schwartz to jump in, Andrew. Thank you, Steve. And Congresswoman, thanks again for being with us today and taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us. I wanted to ask you about the national response. What are your observations about this evolving national response and Congress's role in it? The national response, while I think it started probably a a bit weak initially, I think has become incredibly strong. I think initially, as I said, the testing was a problem and that I think hampered our initial understanding in the country. As I have said publicly a few times now, our concern, I think, was in lack of information coming out of China. And I very much would have liked for China to have allowed the WHO with the American epidemiologist into, you know, the country far earlier. I think there's been serious concern that it probably was going on in China far longer than we knew about. So we could have been better prepared had China been more open. Now we are seeing, though, I think, and have been for the last now month and a half or so, a far more robust response with government reaching out to the private sector to really, you know, fully engage And I believe that they have, you know, really fully engaged. So the governors have really been a critical part in this response and local mayors. Our mayors are working incredibly hard in our communities and and the governors across the country, I think, are communicating very regularly. And it's about communication at the end of the day. And I appreciate that the president brings out a team of people every day to share with us what is new and what they are learning and what is happening. And so, you know, I think it became more serious than I think many officials believed at the beginning, but I think there was a pivot and the pivot happened fairly early on to make it realize that this was going to really change how our country operated for many months to come. Susan, did you engage early on with the governor on getting active and and getting out in the front in front i mean i know the governors have really become the heroes across many states in guiding the response but i'm assuming that there's a very active dialogue between people like yourself and and the governors in these key places there are and i would say that even before congress was sent home i was in communication with governor holcomb and with uh, a team that he has assist Indiana out in Washington, D.C., and they were sharing with me that the state health commissioner did have concern about the state's own stockpile 
So we did spring into action to reach out to the strategic national stockpile folks at ASPR to say we're concerned about Indiana's level of preparedness. And so, yes, uh, many of us across the country, members of Congress, have been talking with the governors and the state health commissioners and doing our parts to you know, communicate with the federal government what the needs are. So, yes, but that happened actually before we even went home. Our state has had a, a hospital platform that uh, was stood up last year that our state, the hospitals on a daily basis, submit their ICU bed, how available those beds are, and actually what their availability is of different products. So this is something Indiana's done for more than a year. They're now populating that platform like twice a day now. And are your constituents pushing you on how are we going to get get to the next phase? How are we going to get back to a normal life? And and what are your answers to them when they press you on that? You know, I feel like we're still in the middle, to be honest. Indiana and a lot of the country, you know, is lagging a bit behind New York City. And so more people are still focused on the response here than on the recovery. I would say the businesses, and I've been in touch with a lot of businesses and lenders since the Paycheck Protection Program certainly rolled out last week, they are most interested in how do we make sure we recover. We need to make sure that the Paycheck Protection Program is working for small businesses. We're encouraging lenders to participate in that. We're encouraging the businesses to participate in it. Obviously, there's been a pretty significant participation rate so far because we want to make sure those businesses, you know, I have friends who are small business owners. I saw a friend as I drove someplace last night, she was on her bicycle leaving her, she owns a hair salon and she has about 50 employees. And so, you know, from an appropriate social distance, I asked how she was doing and she's hanging in there, but it's a very, very tough, whether you're, you know, any personal service business or a restaurant or they're really struggling. So we want to make sure that they can come out the other side of this. Half of the country is employed by a small business. We've got to make sure they're around. Congresswoman, after 9-11, there was a great deal of bipartisanship. People, members of Congress standing arm in arm in front of the Capitol. Doesn't seem like there's that much bipartisanship happening now. Why do you think that is? Well, it's obviously a, it's a different time. The country has been so polarized long before this happened. And in fact, it always gives me comfort when I see the president and a Democrat governor, you know, working hard together on some things. I saw my friend Chris Christie on TV last Sunday. And as he said, as a former governor, you know, during a time of crisis and disaster, it is such a time to set aside partisanship. And we have to join together on behalf of our constituents and work on these problems together. Now is not the time to be placing blame or to be pointing fingers. And there will be plenty of time later on to do after action reports, to do oversight hearings. You know, this has been an extraordinarily difficult time in the country. And we can always say that more could have been done because so much has happened in the country. But I, I think it will be very important. And there are, Anna Eshoo, one of my absolute best bipartisan partners, she and I uh, had a wonderful conversation yesterday. We were on a conference call 
uh, with pharmaceutical companies yesterday, trying to let them know that we're going to continue to work together. I've been on bipartisan calls with some physicians, Dr. Ruiz and Dr. Schreier, Dr. Burgess, Dr. Cassidy. I'm the only non-doctor, which I non-physician on the call, but trying to come up with ideas of how we can work together and, you know, come out of this and continue to improve things even during the crisis. So bipartisanship is happening. We've actually been on a number of calls with administration officials that have been bipartisan and bicameral. And you can't tell on those calls when they're asking officials questions, who's a Democrat and who's a Republican. We all are sharing a lot of the same concerns and questions. So I think we just, when we come through this and get back to D.C., that's a wonderful reminder that we came together after 9-11 and we need to continue to do that whenever we get back to D.C. Do you think Congress is going to change the way it functions when it comes back? to work and people are seeing each other once again face to face? Well, I I certainly hope so. I mean, for the most part, members of Congress actually enjoy really nice, warm relationships. Even though the media doesn't portray it that way, we have incredible friendships across the aisle. You know, when we leave our offices and go back over to the floor to vote, we've, (laughs) in the past, we've been, you know, packed into the small elevators to get over to the Capitol together. Uh, where you're seeing colleagues, you know, on a regular basis a few times a day sometimes. Um, I think some of those practices may have to change depending on when we go back. How we operate may have to change. For the vote two weeks ago, you know, we all uh, social distanced in the chamber. People were up in the gallery. And we'll have to see what kind of social distancing practices the sergeant-at-arms and house administration put into place. You know, we aren't at a point where we have the ability to remote vote, but I'm on the modernization committee, the select committee to modernize Congress, and it's unfortunate that we didn't have the technology, that we didn't have the mechanism in place to allow us to remote vote for exact circumstances like this. I'm not one that believes we should go to remote voting, except for in times of true crisis. But we're in a true crisis right now, and most of us wish we had that capability, but we don't right now. On that note, I want to just ask you a question pertaining to what we saw yesterday in Wisconsin with the um, very partisan clash there between the governor, Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, and the Republican legislators who control both chambers there. Uh, And it was all about the wisdom and advisability of moving towards mail-in ballots, which, you know, we're, we're going to be heading in that direction for the national elections later in the fall. How are you thinking about this issue of moving towards universal mail-in ballots? That's a very difficult concept. I come from a state that has a strong, you know, voter ID law, and we have for some time. It has been upheld over the years, the manner in which it is implemented. And so I do have serious concern about voter fraud if we go to straight mail-in ballots. I think Mm -hmm. it's very, very difficult. And that's why we don't have it at this point in time. These are all the types of discussions, though, that states will have. You know, our states still are in charge of the elections. And that obviously, with what happened in Wisconsin, uh, that's came to light. It's not a federal election system. 
you know, it is a state election system. And so I know those secretaries of state all across the country um, are going to have these very serious discussions. If there is a resurgence, hopefully we will, you know, come through this, flatten the curve, come out of this pandemic, but whether or not the fear is always whether or not there could be a resurgence in the fall. And we know that until we get a vaccine, that will be the great concern. And whether or not we will have to change our practices for this election, there is that possibility. But I think if there is some way that we can confirm the identity of the individual who turns in that ballot, uh, I think that's what we'll have to get to. Thank you. Could you just tell us, give us a few examples of what it's like as a congressperson back in the district under these shut down rules. How do you go about your doing your business and serving your constituents? Well, and I will share with you, I, I would never have guessed how incredibly busy it's been because obviously we're all teleworking. And as are our staff, we have conference calls with the staff a few times a week. But with respect to constituents, it's all about communication, 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 communication. I've been doing weekly newsletters where I used to maybe do them every few weeks or once a month. I've been doing them weekly. We have updated our website considerably, have a huge you know, COVID-19 information page. We are updating that daily. We are answering calls. So calls are still coming into my DC number as well as my district number. And so I still have staff answering those calls, returning voicemails when people call after hours. We also are still receiving casework. We are receiving, you know, issues, whether it's from veterans or whether it's small businesses having difficulties. We also, I've had one staff person who has been dedicated solely to helping constituents who have been in countries overseas get back to the United States. She has helped a tremendous number of constituents connect with the State Department through their STEP program but she has been on the phone with constituents in countries all around the globe, helping them get back. And I'm really proud of our State Department. Uh, we have over 50,000 Americans in countries around the world, and I believe they've gotten back all but 20,000. And they're still bringing people back and helping them, you know, get out of countries and come back to the United States. So we have done, and I, this is not just my office. This is what my colleagues are doing all across the country. We're communicating on social media. We're communicating through, you know, giving interviews through Zoom or through Skype, you know, through Facebook Live. We're doing a lot of things. And it's really mostly about communicating, listening. We're also making calls to make sure checking in with, you know, groups, whether it's hospitals, public health, businesses, chambers of commerce. I can't believe how busy I am. I never would have dreamed we would be this this busy. In fact, I have to make myself take breaks and leave my makeshift office that I had to create at home. Now, I have a critical question, Congresswoman. There's a few areas of this country where basketball is sacrosanct. D.C. is one of them. Indiana is another one of them. In the DMV in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, they've had to go around to public basketball courts and actually nail up the hoops because this is our lifeblood. What are you all doing in Indiana to, you know, unfortunately keep people off the courts for now? They put something over the basket. 
So, you know, people can go out and play. I will tell you, though, for the young people that have basketball hoops in their driveway, when I take my daily walk, I am seeing more kids, you know, who are fortunate enough to have them in their driveways, you know, out playing basketball. I'm seeing more young people out walking than I've ever seen. I'm seeing more young people out riding bikes. I'm seeing more siblings because obviously they're together so much. I'm seeing siblings out together in my neighborhood far more than I ever have. I'm seeing people out fishing in ponds or um, if I drive by, you know, a pond where a neighborhood maybe used to not allow that, they're allowing it now. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. It is. People are getting outside in ways I've not seen. I think that's really good. Now, our state park just closed this week. They actually made a decision earlier you could go and hike trails, but they even made a decision this week to close all the state parks. But that doesn't mean that people can't find places to walk in appropriate social distancing. But if you're with your family, I think it's terrific to get out and get fresh air. It's really been good. Yeah, my wife and I feel very fortunate. We have three teenage sons who all play ball together. And the oldest is a college athlete. The younger two are in high school and middle school and play ball as well. So we've had a lot of family uh, competitions going on here. And that's kept us a little bit sane. It feels kind of old fashioned, doesn't it? Sure does. You know, pulling out the sewing machine, you know, shooting baskets. People are doing more puzzles. People are probably, you know, reading more books. Uh, Now the kids, you know, kids are still in school, just a very different way. And that's the one thing um, Bob Latta, representative from Ohio, who, you know, he and others are talking so much. We're so learning the importance of connectivity. And we do have communities in the country and households that that don't have access to high-speed internet. And so this has been a real challenge for those kids. And our paper has been highlighting, particularly in some of our rural communities, you know, there was a story about one girl who the, it just doesn't reach her home. And so she is going to the school and sitting by herself in a classroom and doing her work every day. But schools have really also been heroes. They're feeding families. They're feeding kids that get most of their food from school. Food banks are doing so much. You know, their teachers are are being creative and working, you know, in ways they've not worked before. And so there there are a lot of people that are going to come through this with, I think, a lot of people having real appreciation for just our everyday heroes. Susan, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. We are in difficult times, we, we know, and we have to prepare for some very much more difficult possibilities ahead. But tell me, you know, what gives you the greatest hope and strength looking ahead? Well, I will tell you that I think a lot more people are really turning to their faith. Obviously, we're talking here during a time of Passover, during Easter, Holy Week. People who normally would want to be with their faith families will be doing it remotely. And so I think knowing and taking strength in our creator, I think, is just incredibly important right now. And asking whomever you might believe in to help us get through this. And also reading the stories about 
our communities and our neighbors pulling together. That gives me strength. Our state has a new theme going in, I-N, in this together, and we're sharing stories about how people are in this together. That gives me strength, seeing that everyone can make a difference. Again, calling on our faith and realizing that we do have to pull together. So that's what gives me strength. And I hope that everyone continues to pull together. We're in this together and realize that our country is going to get through this. We're incredibly resilient people. We've been through very, very difficult times in the past. There's going to be a lot of sorrow and a lot of mourning. And we just have to realize that we will be strong when we come through this. Thank you, Susan. And just to close, um, thanks so much for all of your leadership in Congress and for all the generosity and contributions you've made over the last two years as, as a member of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. We're very grateful to you for that. And I wish you the very best in this next period as we all move forward. Thank you both. And thank you to CSIS for your leadership. And I know that the team that you have assembled are going to continue to provide answers and guidance to the American people, as you have to me and many others. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you to you and your families and all the folks who are listening. It's so important to stay healthy. It's been my honor to be a part of your efforts. And God bless America. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. Take care, too. Take care.